You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you recent articles and opinion pieces from a variety of sources. This one's being recorded on the 13th of January for the listening week that begins the 14th. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. The first topic this week is the movement for reparations. And we'll begin with this review from the Washington Post written by Mina Venkataramanan. This is a conversation between one with one of their reporters on the subject. And this was posted, let's see if we have a date. They don't give me a date at this point. Um, America has long debated whether it owes the descendants of enslaved people reparations for their ancestors' centuries-long enslavement. In recent years, the debate about reparations for black Americans has gone from novelty to potential reality. The country's only successful reparations program was for Japanese Americans incarcerated during World War II. They received a presidential apology and $20,000 for each survivor through the Civil Liberties Act signed by President Ronald Reagan in 1988. Race and ethnicity reporter Emmanuel Felton has written extensively on the ongoing movement for black reparations and the shortcomings of existing reparations programs. We spoke with Emmanuel about his work. What has inspired the current reparations movement? While black folks have been called, pardon me, have been calling for reparations since before slavery was even abolished, the current reparations movement was born in the 1980s after the movement for reparations for Japanese Americans. Former Representative John Conyers, Jr., Democrat of Michigan, first introduced H.R. 40, a nod to the unfulfilled promise of 40 acres and a mule for freed slaves in 1989, and the bill has been reintroduced every session since. The resolution, which calls for a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for black Americans, cleared committee for the first time in 2021, but was never brought to the House floor. How does the current effort compare to the fight for Japanese American reparations? The movement for reparations for black Americans has largely been modeled after the Japanese American reparations movement. In 1980, Congress appointed a committee to study the effects of the incarceration on Japanese Americans and devise potential measures of redress. Like that effort, supporters of reparations for black Americans are planning to start with a commission to clear the path for payments. What kind of problems have the local reparations programs run into so far? The biggest issue facing local reparations programs has been finding the funding. William Darity, a Duke University professor who has been a leader in the reparations movement for more than three decades, estimates that it would cost 
$14 trillion to close the wealth gap between white and black Americans. The combined budgets of all state and local governments in the United States is less than $5 trillion. California, which was never a slave state, is expected to announce the cost of its reparations programs later this year. What motivated this state's efforts? California's reparations program, like most of the current efforts, isn't designed just to address slavery, but the effects of government policies such as redlining and the disproportionate enforcement of drug laws on the black community. But California's deliberations have shown how difficult it is to decide who should be eligible for reparations. All black Americans, including those who have immigrated from Africa and the Caribbean in recent years, or just those descended from people who were enslaved in the United States. Next, still from the Washington Post, we have an article written by Emmanuel Felton, which was posted January 9th this year. A Chicago suburb promised, pardon me, promised black residents reparations. Few have been paid. Despite its problems, the city's $200 million effort, aimed at rectifying decades of housing discrimination, is seen as a model for reparations being considered across the country. Dateline Evanston, Illinois. Inside a chandelier-lit hotel ballroom, dozens of government officials and nonprofit leaders from across the country gathered recently to trade strategies for a once-fringe idea paying reparations to compensate black Americans for slavery and decades of racist government policies. The stars of the evening were local leaders of this Chicago suburb, credited with staunching the country's first government-funded reparations program for black Americans. Some attendees at the conference called Evanston the new Montgomery, Alabama, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, and Robin Rue Simmons, who championed the local effort, a modern-day Rosa Parks. Evanston is the epicenter of the movement's success. Representative Sheila Jackson Lee, Democrat of Texas, who has been calling for a federal study of reparations for years, told the assembled local leaders. She said, What's happening here captures the reality that reparations is not an evil word. It is not a dangerous word. It's not a word that will divide us. But outside that ballroom, the program is failing to meet many of its initial promises. So far, the city has only spent $400,000 of the $10 million promised in 2019. Out of hundreds of black residents who applied, 16 have received money. Another 106 are on a waiting list, with hundreds more behind them. At least five people have died before their promised reparations could be dispersed. The program's leaders acknowledge. City officials say these early stumbles don't diminish their ambitions for the program, which is aimed at addressing decades of housing discrimination rather than slavery. And it's just a starting point, they say. 
The moral urgency of the issue does not allow us to just keep on talking, said Mayor Daniel Bliss, Democrat. It was long past time to act, and it can be scary to go first. It can feel risky to go first. It can be controversial to go first, but somebody's got to go first. Rue Simmons told the crowd packed into a reparations conference that Evanston's restorative housing program, which local leaders call the first phase of their reparation efforts, has already changed lives. Some recipients used their $25,000 grant to help pay down mortgages. Others gave it to their kids to do the same, she said, and one balled out and upgraded their bathroom with marble. All of them have expressed how much hope they have for their future generations' life circumstances in Evanston, said Rue Simmons. Evanston, a town of 78,000, is at the forefront of a movement that has turned reparations for black Americans from a purely academic discussion into a national political debate. Later this year, a California task force is expected to release a report laying out how much state reparations will cost them. Illinois is on the verge of setting up its own reparations committee, and New York and New Jersey are considering it. Despite the growing reparations movement in some liberal cities, President Biden endorsed studying the issue during the 2020 Democratic primary. The idea remains widely unpopular, particularly among white voters and Republicans. Lee has repeatedly introduced legislation calling for a reparations study, but it has languished in the House and failed to gain support in the Senate. The harm caused by slavery is far in the past, and there's no way to recompense the descendants of enslaved people fairly, argue opponents. Some Republicans have also argued it's unfair to have citizens who have no family ties to slavery or were not involved in racist government policies pay for the misdeeds of others. The desire for reparations is understandable, said Richard A. Epstein, a law professor and senior fellow at the right-leaning Hoover Institution. But nearly 60 years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the relationship between black and white America has changed significantly, he said. Epstein said, the danger of seeking reparations is that you are going to have some down-on-their-luck white families that are in real trouble saddled with the costs of such efforts, he said. Meanwhile, some longtime reparations advocates worry the current spate of disparate efforts exemplified by Evanston will take pressure off national leaders to develop a federal program that could offer black Americans more benefits. All of these piecemeal local, state, and private efforts that people are calling reparations are just a detour, said William Darity, a professor Pardon me. A professor of public policy at Duke University who has been advocating reparations for more than three decades. Evanston began debating reparations for its more than 12,000 black residents in 2019, more than a year before George Floyd's murder would inspire many to examine the country's racial divides. Longtime residents say the city has a clear problem. In the socially liberal town, the median white household income is $108,000.
nearly double that of black households at $55,000. Nearly half of black households, about 16% of the population overall, make less than $50,000 a year, compared with 27% of white households, which make up 50 cent, pardon me, 57% of the population overall. About 34% of Latinos who make up 11% of the population make less than 50000 a year, while it's 37% for Asian Americans who make up 10% of the population. Evanston, the home of Northwestern University, is among the affluent suburbs that line Lake Michigan north of Chicago, an area collectively called the North Shore, one of the wealthiest stretches of America. It also has a long history of racist policies. Black people began settling in the area in the 1850s, after Illinois outlawed slavery, and working in the homes of rich white residents. As more flooded north during the Great Migration, Evanston began a decades-long effort to keep its black and white residents separated. Black people were allowed to live in the city, but local covenants kept them confined to one neighborhood, the Fifth Ward. Packed into overpriced homes, they struggled to find economic stability in what is now one of the city's poorest areas and the only ward without its own elementary school or major grocery store. We spent decades enforcing segregation, said Bliss, pardon me, that's Biss, who is white, and we are suffering from the consequences of those unjust acts at this very minute, here in December 2022. Evanston is really two cities, say local residents. One is prosperous and political, pardon me, politically powerful and, like the rest of the North Shore, overwhelmingly white. The other is a more diverse, lower-income city where residents often feel their needs are overlooked. As much as Evanston is celebrated for being this diverse place, we are really a segregated community, said Rue Simmons, whose family has lived in the town for four generations. Rose Cannon's family moved to Evanston in 1919 when her father and his family arrived from Tennessee and settled in the Fifth Ward. As her family prospered in the early 1960s, when Cannon was in high school, they moved into their dream home, a brand new house in the historically white Second Ward neighborhood. They were unable to secure a conventional mortgage and resorted to a contract for deed, she said, referring to a predatory financial agreement commonly required for black people in the 1960s. When a family's members, pardon me again, when a family member's business collapsed, they began to financially struggle and missed a payment, said Cannon. They lost the home and moved back to the Fifth Ward. My mother spent a lot of sleepless nights crying over it and feeling that they were disgraced and people would needle them if they saw them in public. Oh, you're back. What happened to that lovely house? said Cannon. I still love the Fifth Ward, but when I could move, I did. We all felt like crabs in a bucket. When Rue Simmons was elected to the City Council in 2017 to represent the Fifth Ward, she began pushing her colleagues to consider reparations. 
The council formed the Evanston Reparations Committee in 2019, and she found a powerful ally in Chuck Lewis, a white retired investment banker who is one of the city's wealthiest residents and served on former President Barack Obama's campaign finance committees. Lewis said in an interview, When I moved here in 1969, Evanston was just coming out of Jim Crow. We had a black hospital, we had an all-black school, and we had a black branch of the YMCA. This is not ancient history. That's why we're so interested in local reparations, not slavery reparations, because it's proximate, it's close by in terms of geography and time. The effort got a jump start in June 2019 after Illinois' legislature legalized recreational use of marijuana. The city council voted to establish a reparations program and pledged the first $10 million in cannabis tax dollars it received to the effort. The marijuana tax would bring in $500,000 and $750,000 per year, they predicted. In hours of council meetings, there was virtually no public pushback against the idea of reparations, including among white residents in this city where former President Donald Trump received around 7% of the town's vote in 2016 and 2020. Nearly every critic who spoke at the city council meetings complained that the program wasn't generous enough, said Bliss, the mayor. Many wanted black residents to be given direct unrestricted cash payments, but officials decided against that, arguing the money could be taxed. Early in the process, the conversation went to, oh, people can't get cash, so I was like, well, I'm out, said former alderwoman Cicely Fleming, who is black. What's happening is people are starting to call any policy that might benefit black people reparations. I heard one city where they were repairing streets and infrastructure in a black community, and they were calling that reparations. That's not reparations. That's just good government, she said. Fleming was the only member of the council, which consisted of six white and three black members, to vote against the plan. The council settled on a $25,000 housing voucher program they estimated would help about 400 of its thousands of black residents. To qualify, black residents must show that they or their ancestors lived in Evanston between 1919 and 1969 when the city enforced segregation. The money can only be used for buying or repairing a home, leaving out the majority of black Evanston residents who are renters. According to census data, 35% of black households owned their homes in Evanston compared to 65% of their white peers. Ramona Burton, 73, was among the first recipients. She used her $25,000 voucher for a new roof and windows in the three-bedroom ranch-style home she has lived in since the 70s. I really needed these home improvements, so this has been a really good thing for me, said Burton. But she's aware that the vouchers won't help everyone, including renters who may have other financial woes. She said, I don't think they should have restricted it the way they did. The program quickly ran into problems. Instead of the three marijuana dispensaries the city was expecting, 
Only one opened, bringing in a trickle of the tax money initially forecast. A year after the reparations effort launched, few were receiving housing vouchers. In August, Carlos Sutton, a member of the city's reparations committee, announced that his brother, Arthur Sutton, had died, still on the waiting list for one of the reparations grants. At least four others have also died while waiting, said Sutton. Because of you not getting these funds distributed, many of the ancestors have been adversely affected, he told the council. I think this is a disgrace, and whatever commitment the city made to make these payments, they should fulfill it, he went on. Acknowledging the program's slow start, the council voted in December to set aside an additional $10 million over 10 years, this time from a tax on real estate sales of over $1.5 million. That hasn't been enough to convince some black residents who are holding out for unrestricted cash payments and other efforts to address the city's racist history. This is not reparations, but the city has attached onto it in order to make themselves famous across the United States, said Cannon, noting that 33 black city employees recently called on the city to investigate racial discrimination by supervisors and white co-workers. This is all about getting good press, when in reality our city is in shambles, he said. Cannon has not applied for the reparations program. Pardon me, it's a she. Cannon is a she, though she qualifies. Bennett Johnson, another longtime Evanston resident, lobbied the council to adopt a reparations plan, but has been disappointed in the results. Growing up in Evanston, Johnson, 93, says his family was one of the few who didn't live in the Fifth Ward. His father was the groundskeeper at a mansion on the lake, and they lived in the carriage house on the property. White children would tease him as they walked by, headed to a school around the corner that Johnson wasn't allowed to attend. That's what we've always had in Evanston. Drive-by diversity, said Johnson, who worked with civil rights leaders in the 1960s, including Martin Luther King, Jr. Johnson says he welcomed Evanston's efforts to be the first in the nation to launch a government-sponsored program, but the city's money should be going to help black residents build new institutions, such as black-owned venture capital firms and banks, that would provide long-lasting change for the community, he says. Johnson says, I think we can modify it as people realize this current program has no teeth. It's flawed, but we're trying. Despite the program's early stumbles and criticism of its structure, supporters of Evanston's efforts see it as a potential model for the communities considering their own reparations programs. Rue Simmons now tours the country working with community activists in more than two dozen cities to replicate Evanston's program. Last month, she spoke at the United Nations' first session of the Permanent Forum on People of African Descent. Meanwhile, a documentary film about Evanston's program, titled The Big Payback, featuring Rue Simmons and Lee, the Texas congresswoman, premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in June. It's, it has been slow in terms of the obvious metrics of success, said Rue Simmons, but it has been wildly, wildly transformative for our community. Moving next to theroot.com for our final article on this topic for this week. 
This one's written by Noah A. McGee, published January 5th. Minnesota City creates committee to give reparations to descendants of enslaved Africans. The St. Paul City Council voted to create the St. Paul Recovery Act Community Reparations Commission. While it is not a countrywide occurrence, cities across the United States are creating reparations programs for descendants of enslaved Africans. In December, the Boston City Council unanimously voted to create a task force looking into reparations for black Bostonians. Throughout most of 2022, the California Reparations Task Force has done extensive research on the harm the state had done against African Americans and is preparing to give $223,000 to the descendants of slave living, pardon me, slaves living in the state. In August 2022, the mayor of Providence, Rhode Island, signed, pardon me again, signed a $10 million budget to allocate to the Providence Municipal Reparations Program. Reparations are starting to become a thing, and now St. Paul, Minnesota is taking the necessary steps to allocate reparations to its African-American residents. On Wednesday, the St. Paul City Council voted to create the St. Paul Recovery Act Community Reparations Commission, an 11-member team dedicated to reparations to descendants of enslaved Africans. This is according to Pioneer Press. This follows the model of using a task force to research how African Americans have been affected by slavery over the past few centuries in the city, similar to what is being done in Boston and California. The following quote from the Pioneer Press. The ordinance indicates the commission will evaluate city expenditures using quality-of-life metrics as indicators of progress on reparations, create an annual work plan that will notify city officials about commission priorities, and review city programming and budgeting related to reparations. The goal of the commission, according to the Pioneer Press, is, quote, the creation and sustainment of generational wealth for the Afri pardon me, for the American descendants of chattel slavery and to boost economic mobility and opportunity in the American descendants of chattel slavery community. While this is great news for African American residents in St. Paul, there are still many questions left to ask. Who will be eligible to receive reparations? Do you have to be from St. Paul? How long do you have to live there to be eligible? How much will these reparations be worth? These are all things the black citizens in St. Paul have to consider. Still reading from TheRoot.com, their small business section. Two articles. Arizona gets ready for its first black-owned wine bar. This is written by Angela Johnson. It was published on the 11th. Chic Chef 77 Bistro and Wine Bar in Tempe, Arizona is the brainchild of celebrity chef Nick Fields. Phoenix area wine lovers will soon have a new place to sip. Tempe's Chic Chef 77 Bistro and Wine Bar is Arizona's first black-owned wine bar and the brainchild of celebrity chef, entrepreneur, and restaurateur Nick Fields. 
The Brooklyn native who now calls the Phoenix area home has cooked for an impressive list of Hollywood A-listers, including Jada Pinkett, Pinkett pardon me, Smith and Snoop Dogg. Field's vision for Chick Chef 77, and that's spelled C-H-I-C, is an upscale experience that encourages wine lovers to step outside their comfort zone and pop bottles they may never have considered before. And she's carefully curating an international wine menu, including a 200-bottle wine list and rotating selection of by-the-glass pours to make that happen. If the exotic wine selection doesn't leave you feeling fancy, the food menu, which includes upscale bar bites, cheese imported from Denmark, fresh Norwegian salmon, and farm-to-table vegetables from local farmers, should do the trick, and you can end the night with one of Field's decadent desserts like creme brulee and apple pie crumble with vanilla ice cream and salted caramel drizzle. Fields says the space will play host to paint and sips and private tastings, making it a go-to destination for a great girls' night out. Chic Chef 77 will also feature an interactive tastemakers series to educate customers on new wines that includes a table, side pour, and an on-site sommelier to answer questions. We will have the owner of the wine on-site and house international wines from all countries, not just local and Italy, which is the traditional way, said Fields. We have wines from Greece, Asia, Pakistan, and Poland, but our focus is the majority of wines from black-owned brands. We will have live music, including DJs, a violinist, and poetry on designated nights. Chic Chef 77 Bistro and Wine Bar's grand opening will take place on Wine Down Wednesday, February 8th. And I know some people might pronounce that Chick Chef. I think it's Chic, uh, who knows? Chic Chef 77 Bistro and Wine Bar if you're in the Tempe area. And meet Princess Jenkins, owner of Harlem's The Brownstone. This was published back in December the 20th, written by Amira Castilla. The entrepreneur was one of the winners of Harlem's first 2022 Minority Women-Owned Business Pitch Competition. Princess Jenkins, proud owner of Harlem-based boutique The Brownstone, was awarded recently a $5,000 grant after being named one of the winners of the first Carver Federal Savings Bank and the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce 2022 Minority Women-Owned Business Pitch Competition. The goal of the competition? To get minority women-owned businesses to pitch a plan that will help make their business businesses more environmentally friendly. Jenkins, whose store specializes in selling, styling, and tailoring women's clothing from sizes 12 to 20, won the competition by pitching a virtual catalog for her boutique as opposed to the 200,000-page print catalogs that would traditionally go to her 5,000 customers. In her pitch, Jenkins included a shocking fact to help put into perspective how important her plan is for the environment. She said, We are going to save the lives of 200 trees, 
and if you were to line them up, they would go across 125th Street from beginning to end, and you'd still have trees left. In addition to a virtual catalog, the entrepreneur will also use part of the grant money to install environmentally friendly lighting inside the boutique. Carver Federal Savings Bank, which is also Harlem-based, is one of the largest African-American-operated banks in the United States. President and CEO of Carver Bank Corps, Michael Pugh, spoke with The Root to give some background on the competition. Carver Federal Savings Bank and the Greater Harlem Chamber of Commerce wanted to do something together that would support women entrepreneurs, because we know specifically that black and brown women of color are within a nation of business owners that is growing. The second thing that we thought about was the impact of climate change. And we know that when there are any changes in our ecosystem, our nation, the world, people of color oftentimes are impacted by those changes first and in many cases, the most. We knew that we needed to do something that would send a strong message and encourage small businesses to be thinking about ways that they can help reduce their carbon footprint. The Brownstone was established in Harlem in 1998 to create a comfortable environment for mid-sized and plus-sized women. Jenkins mentions that there is a sign in the store that reads, Beware! By wearing this clothing, you may get too many compliments. The messaging is intentional to make all of her customers feel com pardon me, confident and beautiful when they wear her pieces. The boutique was also created to give full-figured women a place to shop freely and learn to feel comfortable in whatever size they wear. What I think that I love about the brownstone is the fact that there's a level of comfort. Some people can be intimidated by fashion, and since I love women and I love fashion, that's what they're going to get when they come into the door. Next article, still from The Root, written by Jessica Washington, posted on the 13th. VP Kamala Harris gets real about environmental racism. VP Kamala Harris warned that, quote, we don't have a minute to spare on climate change in a rousing speech on the crisis at the University of Michigan. No one likes thinking about climate change. There's a reason every supernatural villain these days is a thinly veiled allegory to a rapidly warming earth. Parentheses, looking at you, white walkers. But unfortunately, it's not the kind of thing any of us can choose to ignore. Vice President Kamala Harris seems to have gotten that message loud and clear. On Thursday, the VP hit the road along with Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm to discuss the climate crisis at the University of Michigan. When I think about the shoulders upon which we stand and where we have arrived, said Vice President Harris, according to Michigan Live, I think we should all take note of the momentum we have achieved and our responsibility, now sitting in these chairs in this moment, to then continue with this moment and lead, and not waste a minute, because we don't have a minute to spare. The administration has made massive strides in pushing for policies aimed at combating climate change. 
Last year, President Joe Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which included $369 billion in funding to fight climate change and build climate resilient infrastructure. Harris, who is the first black and South Asian, pardon me, for, let me start that over. Harris, who is the first black and first South Asian vice president, also went deep on the issue of environmental racism. You can look at, for example, the data that tells us that some of the regions in America with the poorest air quality are low income communities and communities of color, said Harris. When you look at rates of asthma, you see correlations. When you look at which communities are suffering the most in terms of extreme weather and therefore need to evacuate, you can see a correlation. Harris isn't pulling these concerns about climate change and environmental racism out of thin air. Experts like Catherine Flowers, founder of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice, have been ringing the alarm bells about the disproportionate impact of climate change and environmental racism on black and brown communities. Flowers said in an interview with The Root, We have to build resilience, but we also have to reduce our emissions. You have to do both. It's not an either-or, because either it can lead to death, pardon me, because either can lead to death for all of us. We've already seen the impact of extreme weather events on underinvested in communities like Jackson, Mississippi, where extreme cold weather events and flooding caused clean water shutdowns for weeks. Financial investments like the kind championed by the Biden-Harris administration in the Inflation Reduction Act are vital now. Waikinia Clanton told The Root the following, The approval of federal funds could not have come at a more opportune and urgent time for the city. It is now up to the local and state government officials to do their due diligence in ensuring that the people of Jackson get the help and support they need during this highly difficult and uncertain time. We can't prevent weather, but we can prepare for it. Funding alone won't be enough. In her closing statement, Harris urged the audience to continue pushing for change on a community-wide level. Help people get excited about all the opportunities this is going to open up in the midst of crisis, Harris said. Even if this crisis was not happening, which it is, it's about a commitment that our nation and the world should always have to innovation and how we can be smarter. Next article from the criminal justice section of The Root. Arizona prison accused of inducing prisoners against their will. This was written by Jessica Washington, posted on January 3rd. Three women say they were induced against their will while incarcerated at the Perryville prison in Buckeye, Arizona, according to news reports. Three women have come forward with serious allegations against the Perryville prison in Buckeye, Arizona according to reports from the Arizona Republic. The three women were forcibly induced against their will before their due dates. It's worth noting that NAFCARE, which took over the prison's health care contract in October, 
denied having a policy of forcing inductions. However, according to the Arizona Republic, which reviewed the women's medical records, all three women were induced before their due dates. Two of the women, Stephanie Pearson and Desiree Romero, were induced at 39 weeks in 2022, and Jocelyn Hefner, another woman who came forward, was induced at 37 weeks on two separate instances in 2020 and 2022. Inducing labor before 39 weeks without a medical reason can pose serious health risks to the newborn, according to research from the National Institutes of Health. The three women told the Arizona Republic that they were induced as a part of the Arizona Department of Corrections policy, not because of any individual health conditions. They said they induce everyone because they don't want anyone going into labor here, Stephanie Pearson told the Arizona Republic, referring to a conversation with a prison obstetrician. They told me, they just told me, pardon me, that someone on a different yard a few years ago went into labor in their cell and had their baby in the cell, and that's why they induce everyone now. Jocelyn Hefner told the Arizona Republic that she was induced twice against her will and that she pushed back each time. Hefner told the Arizona Republic, I felt like I was viewed as a liability and walking around a prison yard nine months pregnant didn't comfort this state institution. The Arizona Department of Corrections did not respond to requests for comment by the Arizona Republic and did not respond to the Roots request for comment by the time of publication. NAFCARE, on the other hand, has been forceful in denying the existence of this policy. NAFCARE's spokesperson told the Arizona Republic any decision to induce is solely the patient's choice. The prison has far from a stellar record when it comes to caring for pregnant inmates. In 2019, the ACLU documented horrific cases of abuse and neglect of pregnant women at the Perryville Prison. According to the report, these women weren't given adequate nutrition, medical supplies, and were shackled while being transported to the hospital. In one instance, the ACLU reported a case where a mentally ill woman gave birth alone over a toilet in her cell at the prison. At this point, the allegations made by the women at Perryville are still just allegations, but only time will tell just how far-reaching these claims will become. Next, turning to the New York Times for an article that covers a story we've been um, reading about on this program for a while now. This was published January 4th, written by Mark Ives. L.A. County to pay $20 million for land once seized from a black family there. California officials seized a beachfront property from Willa and Charles Bruce in 1924. Los Angeles County returned that to their great-grandsons last year. Now they're selling it back. The great-grandchildren of a black couple whose beachfront property in Southern California was seized by local officials in 1924 and returned to the family last year 
will sell it back to Los Angeles County for nearly $20 million, said an official on Tuesday. The Manhattan Beach site once housed Bruce's Lodge, a resort established in 1912 by the property's owners, Willa and Charles Bruce, as a place where black tourists could go to avoid harassment at a time of rampant discrimination against black people in California and beyond, it was known informally as Bruce's Beach. Manhattan Beach officials condemned the property in 1924, paying the Bruce's $14,500 and saying that they needed it for a public park. They ultimately left it undeveloped for more than three decades, and the couple lost a legal battle to reclaim it. The land was later transferred to Los Angeles County and now hosts a training center for lifeguards. But three years ago, nationwide demonstrations against racism and police brutality led to a resurgence of local interest in the Bruce family's campaign. And last July, after Los Angeles County and the California State Legislature worked out the legal details, the county returned the property to the couple's closest living heirs, their great-grandsons Derek and Marcus Bruce. Derek and Marcus Bruce declined to comment on Wednesday through George Fathier, Fathery, I think, who is a lawyer for the family. Janice Hahn, who chairs the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, said on Tuesday that the owners had decided to sell the property to the county for nearly $20 million, a value that her office said was determined through an appraisal process. Ms. Hahn said on Twitter, This is what reparations look like, and it is a model that I hope governments across the country will follow. The county received notice of the sale from the family on December 30th, and the escrow process will likely be completed in 30 days. Liz Odendahl, a spokeswoman for Ms. Hahn's office, said in an email on Tuesday evening, members of the Bruce family could not immediately be reached for comment. Dwayne Yellowfeather Shepherd, a relative who lives in Los Angeles, said in a telephone interview on Tuesday night that the family was, quote, very satisfied with the sale price. He said they had wanted to sell the property because it is zoned only for public use. They had no choice but to sell it and take whatever they could get out of it and use that to invest in some other way to develop their family wealth that they've lost, said Mr. Shepard, a chief clan, pardon me, a clan chief, of the Pocaset Wampanoag tribe of the Pocanoket Nation. That's probably pronounced Pocanoket. Forgive my mispronunciation. Kevin Ward, who founded a group called Justice for Bruce's Beach in June 2020 to support the family's calls for restitution, said in a statement on Wednesday that, quote, While I am disappointed the Bruce's have chosen to sell the land, I understand their decision as the city of Manhattan Beach is anti-black. Ms. Ward is also a founder of Where Is My Land, an organization that seeks to help secure restitution for black families who have had land taken from them. The property consists of two adjacent beachfront lots, 
Miss Bruce purchased one of them in 1912 for $1,225, and the second, eight years later, for $10. Los Angeles County has said, noting that the first lot measures about 33 by 105 feet. Mr. Shepard said the two lots are identical. A persistent question has been whether officials in Manhattan Beach, a city of about 34,000 people that was incorporated in 1912 and is 75% white, would issue a formal apology to the Bruce family. I think an apology would be the least they can do. Anthony Bruce, the great-great-grandson of Willa and Charles, told the New York Times in 2021. The couple who moved to Manhattan Beach from New Mexico were among the first black people to settle in the area. They established their beachfront resort in the era of Jim Crow, amid a resurgence of Ku Klux Klan activities across the United States and campaigns of white supremacist terror and lynchings in the South. Two years ago, the Manhattan Beach City Council voted 4-1, to one to adopt a, quote, statement of acknowledgement and condemnation that did not include an apology. The city's mayor at the time, Suzanne Hadley, condemned the racism against the Bruces but said that an apology would increase the risk of litigation against the city. Steve Napolitano, the current mayor, said in an email on Wednesday that he saw the sale as a win-win for both the family and the county which will continue to operate a lifeguard training center on the property. Nothing about the, me, nothing about the transaction changes the past, but it will certainly help the future of the Bruce heirs, and we wish them well, he said. And what is likely to be the final article for this week, also from the New York Times, A Black Composer's Legacy Flourishes 500 years after his birth. The reputation of Vicente Lusitano, one of the earliest known composers of African descent active in Europe, was thwarted for centuries. This written by Garrett Schumann, posted January 5th. On a day in June 2020, Alice Jones was in her Brooklyn apartment getting ready to attend a Black Lives Matter rally. Dr. Jones, a flautist and composer who serves as an assistant dean and faculty member at the Juilliard School, was adamant about expressing herself as a black classical musician. She said, I felt like it was my obligation to make sure in this moment when we're talking about black lives mattering that we also talk about black art and music. So Dr. Jones designed a sign that listed black composers throughout history. After adding Joseph Boulogne, Chevalier de Saint-Georges, the 18th century subject of the upcoming film Chevalier, she faintly remembered another, older name, Vicente Lusitano. Lusitano was an African-Portuguese composer and music theorist who was most likely born between 1520 and 1522 and who died sometime after 1562 probably the child of an enslaved African woman and a Portuguese noble, Lusitano traversed Europe in a career that saw him depart the Iberian Peninsula for Rome as a Catholic priest in 1550, and around a decade later, relocate from Italy to Germany as a married Protestant. Pardon me, Protestant. He wrote sacred and secular vocal music, 
taught extensively, and produced scholarship that includes a unique manuscript treatise on improvised vocal counterpoint. But until recently, Lusitano has been mostly overlooked by music histories. He has been omitted altogether in some instances, and his appearances in centuries of academic literature have consistently minimized his biography. Philippe Kangulhem, a musicology professor whose name I've surely mispronounced, at the University of Tours in France, said, I have always been shocked by the paradox between the quality of Lusitano's accomplishments and how little we know about his life. The process that diminished Lusitano's reputation followed a kind of circular logic. Generations of historians and performers inherited sources that did not discuss his music and writings in depth, so those practitioners repeatedly presumed Lusitano's achievements must lack artistic and academic significance. No standard practices of revision existed to reassess this understanding of his life and music, and he became trapped in the margins of classical music's history. It took until the late 19th century for new scholarship to revisit Lusitano's printed works, beginning a 150-year-old reclamation project. Important strides were made in the 1960s and 70s, and since 2000, the Internet has become increasingly important to Lusitano scholarship. The summer of 2020 saw the onset of a new and ongoing flurry of interest, whose roots are entirely digital. Dr. Jones's demonstration sign played a part in the current wave of activity. A picture of her placard went viral on social media and broadcast Lusitano's name to a new audience. After seeing the sign, Joseph McCarty quickly searched for scores of Lusitano's music to perform with his church choir, but could only find scans of the 16th century originals. So he spent that summer making his own updated versions. He is one of many experts and enthusiasts who produced the first modern editions of Lusitano's compositions and shared them on free online databases. Dr. McCarty is a Scottish Congolese conductor and early music specialist based in London. The result was a burst of new performances in the months that followed. Nearly five centuries after Lusitano's death, dozens of choirs in the United States, Canada, and Europe perform his music for the first time, largely because his scores were finally accessible. Lusitano's legacy has always been subject to information technology, whether in today's digital world or that of the 16th century printing press. This is particularly evident in the history of Lusitano's 1551 dispute with his Italian contemporary, Nicola Vicentino. That summer, the two faced off in a formalized set of arguments debating analytical definitions of chromaticism. Ultimately, a panel of three senior Vatican musicians declared Lusitano victorious, but Vicentino quickly began to stoke skepticism and work to invalidate the judge's decision. He used an influential 1555 treatise to publish distorted and fabricated accounts of the dispute. That harmed Lusitano's reputation by portraying him as equivocating and old-fashioned. Giordano Mastrocola, an associate researcher at the University of Toulouse-Jean Jarret, 
has also identified important political contexts that magnified Vicentino's influence. He said, Lusitano was an outsider, and it is so clear that Vicentino had some important relationships in the higher spheres of Italian society at the time. Whatever the motivation for scholars to favor Vicentino, Lusitano suffered as a result. Later generations of historians simply accepted easily available information about the dispute without examining its veracity, and Vincentino's story transformed into established fact. Lusitano was a skilled, accomplished musician, not a pariah. Today, Lusitano is not easy to study, even if you can find performances of his music on YouTube. Little correspondence and few records of his life are known to have survived, both because earlier scholars had no interest and because his socio-political disenfranchisement constrained the publication of such documents. Particularly in its recursive moments of erasure, Lusitano's experience as an historical figure illustrates the kind of collective activity that has traditionally excluded composers of African descent from classical music's conventional performance and academic institutions. Melanie Zek, a reference librarian at the Library of Congress's American Folklife Center and former reference librarian at the Center for Black Music Research, emphasized that the first historians of black classical music responded to these exclusionary tendencies by developing what she called a totally separate practice from mainstream academic scholarship. Dr. Zek said, People would come together, musicians, business people, teachers, in search of historical truth. That is the same reason Dr. Jones made her protest sign two years ago. And that brings us to the end of the time for this week. Thank you so much for joining us. This was the Black Experience Hour. AINC programming is made possible by funding from the city and county of Broomfield. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.